Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges, such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. Welcome to Innovation Matters. Today's topic is the digital economy, its nature, implications, potential, risks, and what this all means for the role of innovation policy and governance more broadly. Our guests are Dr. Karen Holroyd and Dr. Ken Coates. Dr. Holroyd is the, is the professor of political studies at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada. And uh, she's worked, she's published numerous books and articles on political economy, Japan, and the politics of innovation and technological change. Professor Coates is the Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson Shoyoma Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. He has a PhD in history and he has served as a senior administrator at universities across Canada and in New Zealand. And he was also the Dean of Arts at the University of Waterloo where he was instrumental in setting up the Stratford School of Interaction, Design and Business, and he has also published widely. Together, they have written the book that is the focus of this podcast. It's called The Global Economy, a Comparative Policy Analysis, and it lays out the policy roadmap for the digital economy, identifying the nature, risks and opportunities of these developments in the 21st century economy. Thanks very much. The digital economy is about both the digital infrastructure and about the content that's distributed on through that infrastructure. And we focused primarily on uh, digital content. So that's things like animation, video games, digital art, social media, blogging, videos, video conferencing, which of course has grown so much over the pandemic digitized versions of books and movies, that kind of thing. And this has been, uh, over the last two decades, a very fast-moving, uh, rapidly growing, and kind of unique part of the global economy. So it includes today, like, large companies like Facebook and Yahoo and Google, but also lots of small providers, YouTubers, bloggers, people who write novels for cell phones, all of that kind of thing. So we wrote the book back in, in 2013. I think it came out in at the beginning of 2015, and the sector, of course, has changed and grown uh, dramatically since then. That's a very interesting area to look at. Uh, one surprising thing that, uh, that we noticed is how domestically focused the digital content sector is. Of course, the most popular, famous video games and films and animations, they garner an international audience, but due to language and cultural differences, the vast majority of digital content is actually consumed uh, domestically. Which is quite, uh, which is quite surprising, and is a huge, uh, a huge domestic market, actually. So I, I always find this topic really, really interesting because everybody knows that the world is now digital. Digital is to the 21st century what electricity was to the 20th century. And initially in the 20th century, they talked a lot about electricity and we have electrical this and electrical that. And after a while, you stop talking about it because it just was so normal. And we're kind of that way in the digital sort of world right now. Digital is, is sort of almost everything. It's, it's fused all across so, so many systems. And in fact, what you described, Andrews, is that the fourth industrial revolution 
is really all about the, the distribution of information from machine to machine, from machine to human beings, from human beings to human beings, and it's very, very complicated sort of way. What used to be separate systems are now very, very closely, closely integrated. And you see this happening on a massive scale. The problem with digital content, at, at least from my point of view in terms of the government's figuring this out and even the public paying attention to it, is that for a long time it was seen as a teenage enterprise. So it was the kids who were talking to each other on, on Instagram. It was the kids who had YouTube videos. It's young people who started the TikTok sort of revolution. Um, so what we've got here is a massive transformation of the economy, um, a data-rich system that is, that is so powerful we can scarcely sort of imagine it that the global integration of manufacturing and distribution and supply chains and all that kind of stuff really at, at a level that we really can't even comprehend uh, so much so much anymore in the process society is being reformed we're seeing a complete transformation of political life the social culture and social relationships are being changed not always for the better sometimes very very much very much for the worse um, we're having a transformation of entertainment so one of the interesting examples would be Netflix. It's used digital platforms to share television and movies from all around the world. So I can be here in Canada and go online and watch movies from 150 different countries. And it's quite remarkable. Um, that was not something you could do 20 years ago. You know, the content, getting something out of the Ukraine was extremely difficult. Nowadays, it's really instant. And that, that's quite a transformative sort of, sort of piece. And, and I guess the other part is the democratic power of digital content and digital technologies. For the first time in human history, power has shifted away from the centers of, of knowledge, be they at the capital city, the government, universities, the libraries, and actually now in the hands of every single person. So there are billions of people around the world who have access to more information than, than the, the Library of Congress you know, has in its, in its holdings. And, and access to each other, and the ability to talk to each other, to buy from each other, and to learn from each other. So we are actually at, I think, the most transformative time in human history, and we don't really understand it yet. We haven't really figured out um, its full implications for society, for politics, for the economy. Uh, but all we know is that unrelenting digital change is simply part of our lives. Thank you very much for those interesting responses. There are just a a couple of things that stood out to me. One point which I think we see all over is this unexpected mixture of the hyper, hyper global, hyper local, and also hyper specific. I think we're seeing a lot of the long tail that Mark Andreessen talked about two decades ago really playing out. People get together around very, a very, very small, limited set of, of, of interests because we now have the technology to tag photos to, to bring things to, to bring people together to ensure trust through, through reviews and things like that. Another thing which I think we're also seeing is that the lines between the different sectors of the economy are being blurred more and more. And you mentioned the example of electricity. Uh, if you build a refrigerator as a part of the electricity sector, of course not. Is Uber actually an IT company? Of course not. It's actually more of a marketplace, more like a physical market. It's maybe more like the Sears catalog then. Than, than it is an IT company. And at some point, what is an IT company? And then finally, we've seen throughout history that we always overestimate innovation in the short term and underestimate in the long, and that we're almost never correct. So in 2005, the World Summit on Information Society gathered some of the best experts on the digital economy. They came up with a report, about 400 pages, no mention of cloud computing, 
no mention of social networking, no mention of um, of mobile internet. 2005, best experts in the world. So if they if they can't do it, if they can't predict what's going to come just a couple couple of years down the line, then policymakers who are used to you know having a, a pretty good picture of what's going to happen next and what they need support are going are going to be struggling. So that brings me to the next question of what are, what can policymakers do to, to support this development to maybe mitigate some of the trade-offs and there in your book you're talking particularly about about what Japan and, and Korea did and uh, the role that it played and how it was sort of the next step in, in, in their previous development focusing on chip making and computers and so on. That in that report there was no uh, no mention of the mobile internet because that actually started in Japan back in 1999-2000. Uh, um, so in fact, a lot of our uh, original focus on research on the digital content economy uh, began with uh, looking at what was happening in Japan. As most people know, Japan was a leader in the development of many of the products and technologies of the IT sector. When you think of uh, dominant names in IT, Panasonic, Toshiba, Sony, Sanyo, you, you remember the, the kind of power of Japan's presence. But a lot, a lot of people realize that Japan was also a real leader on the digital content side. They introduced world's first mobile internet service in 1999. A company called NTT Docomo launched something called iMode. Uh, and that was years and years, 10 years, in fact, before the Apple iPhone, and yet very little attention paid to it outside of uh, outside of Japan. So one of the things I think that's really important about this is the idea that we need to also pay attention to what's happening in other countries. So very interesting, as I say, that um, that there was no mention of the mobile Internet when it was actually already expanding and growing uh, in Japan from uh, 1999 on. Japan's been a, a major producer of animation and manga, the uh, Japanese cartoons, but uh, a world leader as well in video games and video game technologies, but also in digital applications. So when they launched iMode, they also launched a range of different kinds of apps for the iMode phones. First digital art sales were actually, um, they, you, could, you could buy a subscription where a cartoon would be sent to your phone every day, so you paid something like, uh, you know, the equivalent of uh, $10 a month, and every day you got a little different cartoon. The beginning of what's now kind of digital art sales, but happening 20, uh, 20 years ago. Other kinds of things using uh, GPS and technology to uh, to show people what's around them. They had something in, uh, in Japan early on called uh, Kyoto Walks where it would basically show you what was in your neighborhood as you walked uh, as you walked along and stores would actually send little messages to your phone offering you a discount on something that was in your store as you passed them. Again, that was happening 20 years ago, but not getting a lot of attention outside of Japan. So Japan saw digital content as uh, an emerging economic sector very early and uh, began to promote it quite early as well. So you've asked a, a really interesting question about something that is so ubiquitous now, so common that the, the digital economy and the digital content economy is just known to sort of to sort of everybody, um, and it's taken a long time for these things to take root uh, in terms of, of government understanding. Um, so governments spend an enormous amount of money on hardware. They spend an enormous amount of money on building computer companies, and then and then they shift it over to software companies that were doing interesting kinds of things. And, and nations sort of rose and fought, fell on the on, on the strength of their their digital communication systems. So, for example, um, you know, uh, Finland had Nokia, 
that became a world leader in, in sort of wireless cell phones and cell phones customs generally. Um, you know, Canada produced BlackBerry, which for, for years was uh, more prominent than the iPhone. It was, and it brought in, you know, intermobile, intermobile, email, mobile, internet, and things, and things of that sort. So what we've been trying to do, we, we got interested because of Karen's work, particularly in Japan, broadened that out to a study of East Asia and saw similar sorts of things going on in, in South Korea, in Taiwan, in Singapore, and in China later on, and some very aggressive developments there. Obviously, we follow the North American scene really, really closely. And, and North America is an interesting place because it's, it's dominated so much. When you think of, of Amazon and Google and Facebook and Apple, these are all American companies that are some of the biggest companies in the world, biggest companies in the history of the world in terms of market capitalization, how much, how much they're actually worth. Um, but what's interesting is those companies are perhaps better at, at marketing than they are at actually technological innovation. So Apple is a perfectly fine company. Their iPhones are very competitive, et cetera, et cetera. But Karen's talking about Docomo and the iMode phone. It was in operation years before. But Apple markets better than anybody around. They they actually get people, young people, to get rid of their old iPhone because now they can get rose gold. And, and, and that's not very important, quite frankly. It's just the color of a phone. But they've actually done an amazing job of sort of turning it into a fashion accessory, so that what started off as a digital technology becomes something that's just part of your, your personality and, and sort of part of your character. So the, the problem we've, we've found is that governments have not been able to keep up with the speed of the digital economy and the digital sector. They really doubled down on the technology. They were convinced to go into the software in a sort of fairly major way. But they could not really, and they're still not really there yet, get past the fact that most digital content starts off as communication among teenagers. And they, they made a mistake that Docomo and other companies in Japan didn't make. Because what they discovered in Japan was somebody is 13 years old and they're using a cell phone. In 10 years, they're going to be 23. And in 20 years, they're going to be 33. And if you give a 13-year-old girl a cell phone, she's going to get other 13-year-old girls to listen to it. And then the 13-year-old boys are going to get on it as well. And so there's this huge transformative effect of it sort of spreads out like a, like a wave when you throw a rock in a, in a calm pool. Governments haven't figured that out. And they sort of brushed it aside and said, who cares about those things? Who cares about Bethany Moda? Who cares about influencers? Uh, who cares about TikTok videos? And the next thing you know, you've got elections that are being won on the basis of the way in which one party or another is better able to manipulate or use digital media, social media, and all these communication communication technologies. Governments have had a been challenged to try to figure out how to support the digital content sector because they're used to supporting large manufacturing sectors and digital content companies don't look the same as uh, large manufacturing companies. Generally, the digital content companies are smaller, uh, younger, more artistic, changing more, more rapidly, all of those kinds of things. And so governments, uh, first of all, as Ken mentioned, they didn't really kind of take them seriously. And then they didn't really know how to uh, to support them or see the sector as having significant economic potential, which is kind of interesting. Today, when we see the growth of Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, or Meta, as it's now called, governments are now rushing to kind of cultivate those kinds of companies that they, they basically ignored for, for a long time. So initially, the thought was that the sector would, would remain kind of small and mobile, but we've seen that uh, there's actually high levels of concentration, some of the most 
uh, valuable and fastest growing companies in the world are actually in the digital content sector. But it was countries uh, in East and Southeast Asia that were quite far ahead in terms of seeing digital content as a promising economic sector. In North America and Europe, there wasn't so much of a, a focus on that. Certainly when we interviewed people when we were writing the book, in Europe we didn't he- have a lot of, didn't see a lot of comments from people about the digital content sector as an economic sector. There was much more discussion about digital inclusivity, which is also very important, basically building computer skills among uh, the elderly and the poor or people with disabilities and digitization for the preservation of uh, cultural heritage. We saw a a lot of discussion about that in in Europe. And those are, of course, very uh, important and significant. But there wasn't a lot of talk about ways in which governments could support the development of the digital content sector itself. But when you look in East and, and Southeast Asia, there's some really interesting examples of ways in which they very early on were trying to support the sector. So that began uh, first with a focus on broadband coverage. So uh, Taiwan, for example, had sort of a, a philosophy saying bandwidth first, content later. So the plan to support the content sector, but to have a viable content sector, you have to have good access to, uh, uh, have to have good bandwidth throughout the country. And so all of the uh, East and Southeast Asian countries really saw that as their initial focus. But since then, and to me it's really very interesting what uh, a lot of these countries have done to try to encourage people to, and regular people, to participate in the digital content sector. So one thing is a number of places, Hong Kong, Malaysia, South Korea, they all have uh, kind of labs or digital content um, sort of community center kind of places available where entrepreneurs, and sometimes in South Korea's case, you don't even have to be an entrepreneur, you just have to be interested, where they can use facilities like uh, video editing suites, recording studios, 3D printers, all those kinds of things, to try to get people involved and and, uh, engaged in creating content with meeting rooms, and uh, but often they have all sorts of other things as well, um, counseling, places where you can pitch, so they bring in companies that buy content and designers can pitch their new product or game or whatever it is to these uh, to these buyers. Singapore as well as having the same kind of center with all of the different tools and rooms and things that can be used, um, also has all sorts of thematic sets so that if you're a singer wanting to produce a new video or a YouTuber, you can use these kind of background sets to you know, make your, your video or whatever it is more, uh, more interesting. Again, all of these places also bring in trainers, so people to teach people about how to create digital content, networking sessions where they bring in people with investors who might potentially invest in their business, uh, workshops for animators who, or people who are trying to become animators, all of those kinds of things. Lots of matchmaking, networking, and, uh, and financing. So some really, uh, some very interesting things going on there. Uh, in Malaysia's case, they even have a university, the Multimedia University, and designed that university so that it would supply the human resources needed for the digital content sector. So to feed companies in the city with researchers and research researchers and employees. So they have 17,000 students there, very tied in with government and uh, and industry. Students actually do an internship with a company. Uh, university programs are monitored. So basically, to, to ensure that students are trained properly, um, all kinds of things, all kinds of things like that. So basically, Malaysia is seeing this as a key sector, and they're trying to make sure they've got enough people to uh, to work in it. One of Malaysia's focuses, uh, interestingly, is the Islamic market, 
basically because Malaysia is a, a Muslim country, they're creating content that's also of interest to other Muslim countries. And in fact, there's a, a center for Islamic digital application and, uh, and content at this multimedia university. And I'll just add really quickly to Karen's point, which is just a wonderful summary of sort of what's going on, is that governments haven't figured this out. That's the simple point. Um, governments need to modernize their economic strategy, to realize that the hardware industries are very much dominated by East Asia and China, and focus more on content, more on digital services, less on physical products and what have you. And I think there's a huge opportunity in the area of artistic expression and, and content creation that will actually, we've always, we've always known that cultural industries produce more jobs per, per dollar spent than almost any other. But you, now you have a chance to do this on a global scale to be actually very, very significant. And I think if you look now, you realize that, you know, hardware dominated the world till, till 2000. Software dominated the world from 2000 to 2015, and it's still going like crazy. But digital content is where a lot of the driving force for economic growth is going to, is going to be. We're going to see billions of dollars invested in this in the years to come. And, and countries are now going after Netflix to try to convince Netflix to spend more and more money on the local scene and buying their television programs and whatever. And you're starting to see, going back to reinforce the point we've made many times, this is not about buying into the global economy and, and or global culture and seeing your whole society subsumed by westernization. We actually see a whole bunch of replication. So China, for example, is going systematically through all the systems. They have their own YouTube. They have their own TikTok. They have their own e-commerce sort of sites and whatever. And you see that very much sort of around the world. So simple point, governments have to connect with youth culture. They have to connect with digital culture. And they have to look at the commercialization of content because that's where much of the future will be found. Thank you very much for, for your very interesting comments. It's true that we see uh, problems such as concentration, uh, network agglomeration and network externalities and the rising role of intangibles and also the concentration of intangible assets in, in, uh, in specific parts. Uh, there's much more inequality there than in inequality in income if you look at among countries. So is that a problem or not? It's, it's, it's not clear, but it's definitely uh, a trend. Then there's, there's always a tendency to focus on hardware and and connectivity, because that's the easy part. What's more difficult are the skills and even moving into building, you know, a right innovation on entrepreneurship ecosystem. But the role of government is not clear at all. But our countries are trying it. I, I think with all the countries, we're working on innovation features very high on the agenda. It's not often a very broad view of innovation. It's sometimes very focused on sexy startups, the way, the way they are imagined and frontier technologies rather than, you know, what you could do by, for instance, uh, you know, in, in healthcare, just by using platforms better and existing technologies, just by reducing transaction costs. There's less, there's less attention to that. So governments are struggling a bit, and especially in view of all of the issues that are coming up in terms of how do we regulate this, uh, how do we avoid some of the negative sides that always comes with new technological development, how do we maintain the positive sides, for instance? How do we how do we enable trade with data because data is very valuable, while at the same time make sure that there's uh, that there's enough data privacy. All of these questions are coming up at the same time as uh, in innovation policy is trying to promote this development in many different ways. 
So what have you seen and what have you learned, especially since you wrote the book? What are, what are some of the things that are happening? Well, I've certainly seen an awful lot of change and a lot of an increase in the speed of change. So the things are, are trend being transformed faster and faster all the time. And the question you raised and there's a regulation is a really, really important one. Uh, because quite frankly, the genie is out of the bottle already. Um, you know, the, we've already lost that one. And we, we, as we're trying to regulate Google after the fact, we're trying to bring Facebook under control. And the reality of it is, is that if Facebook got under control, if we managed to bring it under some sort of regulatory framework, some other app will, some other platform will pop up very, very quickly. And so the, the challenge we have right now is it's very inexpensive to get into the business. You can, you can create your own digital content, create your own website, create your own apps. Very, very inexpensive. You don't have to build a manufacturing plant. You just have to sit in the basement with a few friends and you can create something really, really quite dramatic. So I think the problem is governments have to rethink their approach to economic management. This is a much smaller level, smaller scale operation. It's very different talking to a bunch of app producers than it is talking to a bunch of manufacturers. You're talking to a bunch of 20-year-olds instead of talking to 50- and 60-year-olds. And, and they, they, they don't operate in the same kind of way. They don't use the same business models. Um, and then they sometimes fly way under the radar until they all of a sudden pop up and you realize you've got a company worth a couple of hundred million dollars sitting in your backyard. You didn't even know they were there. And so it's really hard for governments to sort of to figure this out. And I think we need to sort of start from, from getting governments to understand what's actually sort of going on. And I'd offer a couple of other things really quickly. The impact of, of social media, the social impact of social media and digital content is vastly underestimated. We have seen a spike in female anxiety, teenage female anxiety that's unprecedented in world history. Um, we're going to see some really interesting challenges. I think a lot of young men are actually in their parents' basements playing video games. They're not going to college, not going to university, and not joining the workforce. What's going to happen to that group when they're 40 years old? That is a huge problem. Um, and finally, you know, we're actually now in a situation in many countries where we're now subsidizing traditional medias, where, where governments are coming in and, and paying newspapers to print newspapers and paying journalists to write newspaper stories. Why? Well, because nobody's reading them anymore. So governments are subsidizing the old economy and ignoring the new economy. Well, why are people not reading newspapers? Because they're getting their news from from Facebook, and they're getting their news news updates from Instagram and from other and TikTok and other sources. So we have got to got to get in a situation where the governments catch up with the 21st century. I think governments right now in many parts of the world are trying to recreate the economy of the 1990s, and they're not 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 trying to do what they should do, which is create the economy of 2020 or 2030 and 2040. We need forward-looking government policies down the line. Thank you very much for those, those interesting comments. It's, it's always one of the things I, I always like to say is that 99% of innovation has nothing to do with technology at all. It's actually thinking through what you can do with it and then seeing what, seeing what happens. It, it would be hard to predict that it would have taken exactly the way that it's taken. Now we can see a lot of possibilities. Just you know, think of the possibility of sharing resources more efficiently in the sharing economy so we can consume much more by producing much less or autonomous vehicles. It's going to take a while for regulations to catch up, but especially also for our habits and to, to catch up and for other business ideas to be created on the platform. And it's probably not going to work out exactly like we, like we have in mind, uh, even five years from now. And we need governments to be able to respond to those developments and, and, and mitigate the side effects. 
But based on your book and our discussion, sometimes you said governments have made minimal efforts to devote sufficient attention to digital content, mostly because it's easier to invest in infrastructure, and it's it's something that's hard to understand and, and particularly difficult difficult to predict. And maybe it's also the remit of a specific uh, cultural sphere. But there have been some success stories around the world, as we know, and I wanted to invite you to talk about some of the ones that you feel particularly passionate about and what they what they show us. Thanks very much. Yeah, there are some some interesting interesting success stories. Estonia was a, is a particularly interesting example on the on the e-government front. They were well ahead on uh, on that front. Citizens were able to actually submit pre-populated tax forms back in 2000. They had online voting in national elections since 2005. So all kinds of things on the e-government front, uh, Estonia was uh, was well ahead. Sweden was, has done some very interesting things on uh, digital inclusivity. Basically uh, had a huge uh, campaign aimed at supporting those who don't know how to use digital services or unaware of the opportunities that the internet could offer them and trying to uh, try, trying to support them. It's very important as more and more government services move online for people who don't know how to access those. It's uh, it's a big challenge on the the corporate front. Um, Angry Birds, uh, a game invented by a small uh, Finnish company, really helped commercialize cell phone games. Uh, incredibly popular with uh, millions of global users. Not produced by a, a major multinational company, but but by uh, a company started by three university students. So some really interesting things. Some interesting things on in Africa. Uh, the impact of cell phones on uh, sub-Saharan Africa uh, back in 2007. M-Pesa, which is a mobile phone-based uh, money transfer service, really had an enormous impact on uh, not just on uh, Kenya where it was first launched, but on a number of countries in sub-Saharan Africa because it allowed people to securely uh, transfer money, which meant they didn't have to walk miles to, to give money to, to, to someone in their family, for example, as many people were you know, unbanked, as they say, and didn't have uh, didn't have access to uh, to banking, so that had a that had a major effect. Um, so there's there's quite a lot of uh, interesting success stories in a whole range of uh, of different areas. Thank you, Karen. I think the, the the striking thing here is how much of this emerged without, or in some cases, despite government intervention. And PESA, for instance, was not in line with prudential regulation in Kenya and was still able to provide financial services. And all of the examples that you mentioned are what Clayton Christensen would call both disruptive innovation and market creation, so targeting non-consumption. So, for instance, giving insurance or giving instant noodles or giving uh, basic financial services to people to whom it was not accessible before. And quite, actually quite a bit of this is happening, including even uh, private schools for some of the poorest citizens in Kenya. It actually works. They actually managed to build a business model, business model around that. But let's turn again, just as the final question before we close, to what what governments are trying to do. So what we see all over ECE is that to simplify the strawman version of the story is this. They look at the Silicon Valley and a couple of other successful technology clusters out there, and they say, oh, okay, we need a, a large investor, we need a university, and then we need things that we call incubators and accelerators and Y combinators. And then we need all these uh, flashy spaces with all kinds of slogans around them and open plan offices 
and then we just bring people together and and uh, you will see wonders emerge and this will be the new backbone of our economy. Often, unfortunately, what happens is that what comes up are either copies of other business models or sometimes we even see uh, very basic software creation, HTML programming, network administration. Very seldom you see something actually innovative uh, come up. Talk a little bit about the, the phenomenon, what Lam Pritchett uh, would call isomorphic mimicry, which is uh, basically setting up an institution that looks like the original but doesn't actually fulfill the same function. Well, I, I love the phrase, and I love the concept, and I warn everybody about this all the time. So, um, you know, forget this idea about, you know, Silicon Valley being a model. Silicon Valley, first off, people don't understand why, why Silicon Valley emerged in the first place. Um, it wasn't because of Stanford, it wasn't because of some freewheeling entrepreneurs, it was because of Hewlett Packard and access to the American Army. Um, in fact, you had a whole bunch of American, and, and the generals then could write checks really quickly and make all sorts of deals, and it worked very, very well. But it was a very unique place in time, right? So we have we talk about Waterloo about as, as you know Canada Silicon Valley. Well, these are completely different places, and and I really worry about that model. And, and so he, here's the problem that I see: we have actually standardized the approach to innovation. So innovation is no longer innovative. It's actually I mean copy the whole thing. And so you look around the world; everybody has the same model. Send a whole bunch of students to university and college put a whole bunch of money in basic research, put some money into commercializing the basic research, and you will have jobs and lots of wealth. And every country, Botswana has this model, Sweden has this model, Taiwan has this model, they're all the same. Well, you don't get, you're not innovative if you're copying what everybody else is doing, because then it's a race. And how do you ever catch up to the United States? How do you get up to China, which is doing it you know, very, very differently? So you have other models that work. China leads by, by having the government use the technology. Government uses the software, sometimes for ways that we're not very comfortable seeing them, them do it. But, but we have those other models that are emerging in sort of different places. The most successful models are ones that spring from local environments. And in fact, I would argue that we have to move into a post-national innovation policy. When governments for a whole country say, this is the United Kingdom or this is Norway, we're going to have an innovation policy. Well, actually, each of those countries is way too diverse. And you have way too much, you know, the, the big cities versus the small towns and the rural areas and the indigenous peoples and, and whatever. What you actually have to do is actually just let things flourish at the local level. Uh, let people innovate, let people create, make sure there's, there's money for content creation, for innovation. I'm not particularly a huge fan of incubators. We have incubators sort of all around the world now. Everybody's copying the incubator model because we think it actually works. Incubators are kind of okay for getting some companies to, the, to a sort of startup point. But in fact, they're very poor at leading to companies that, that migrate into sort of big, more substantial, more substantial operations. What's important is not the, in, in, the incubator, which is often attached to a university. It's the local ecosystem. Do you have local investors? Do you have local supporters? When BlackBerry, which became Research in Motion, became BlackBerry, one of the biggest IT companies of its time and, and responsible for the BlackBerry Messenger and all that sort of thing, their, their turning point in many ways was when a local real estate developer gave them a free office space for a couple of years. You know, it wasn't because the University of Waterloo or Wilfrid Laurier, both were very important to these institutions, this company, but it was the fact that you had this local ecosystem of people who believed and tried and invest and, and whatever. So where, where do I see government playing? Government can play a, a, a role, a major role as, as first purchaser, as early mover. 
Um, governments are often the last movers. They wait for everybody else to experiment. But Estonia has done, as Karen's described, you know, the importance of sort of being first in there and, and creating an industry in the wake of what government actually does. And, and I would argue as well, you know, connect up with the content sector. You know, your musicians, your singers, your writers, your designers, your artists, those are the folks connected up to digital content, digital technologies. Those are the ones that are really going to drive things in the future, and those are inherently local. They, they draw on local language, local culture, and local local tradition. So I, I'm very much an optimist for the fact that, that we're going to see a situation where we're moving away from the big company, big city model. Thank you, Ken, for this inspi inspiring voice. In fact, it is something to be excited about. Of course, we have to watch out. There are always going to be trade-offs, but I like I like to see it this way. So when, when Coase asked himself, why do we have a forum, his answer was, Transaction costs. And at some point, Oliver Williamson, I think it was maybe three decades ago, estimated that transaction costs is actually more than 60% of the economy. I see the digital economy as the promise of radically reducing those transaction costs. Yeah. What we don't know is exactly how it's going to happen and how it's going to play out and how long it's going, how long it's going to take. And actually, in many ways, to take your example of Netflix, they actually started going back into content creation after a while because they realized that that's where they could add a lot of value. And at the same time, there is no easy way to simply get whatever movie or series that you want through one platform. So many of these transaction cost problems have not been resolved, and it's not clear to which extent they're going to do it. And at the same time, why do I drive alone to work every morning with so many people, with so, with so many people behind me going in the same direction? because I have no easy way to transact with them. It's an easy thing to do, but it will take a while to, to play out. So that's why when we work with government, we really try to, to, to help them get away from this idea that you can simply build something, pick a couple of sectors, put up, put up a few keywords, maybe subsidize them generously, and then expect things to come up. There needs to be a much more, there needs to be mechanisms in government to really keep keep track on what's happening and where there is momentum and find out where a little bit of public support could help more people try more things out than otherwise would be the case. So with that, I thank you once again for your participation and I would invite you to, to conclude on your side and give us your, um, your three or four thoughts, for, especially for policymakers in the ECE region, on how to make the most out of the digital economy and specifically the digital context sector. Okay, I'll make a couple of quick comments and then and then turn it to Ken. Um, I think from, from my point of view, one of the things I think is most important is to pay attention to what's happening in other regions. That's one of the things that I don't think we do enough of. And a lot of interesting things were happening in East Asia and in Southeast Asia while and and in Europe and North America we really didn't we really didn't pay attention to them. So that would be my first uh, bit of advice would be to say see what's happening there. Um, on this in this sector in many ways that area has been ahead. Um, and so it's worth it's worth seeing what they're doing and what they're focusing on and how they're supporting their content creators in uh, in that area. So I I this has been a wonderful opportunity to speak you to speak to you and ECE and to learn more about your activities and to sort of bridge and give some ideas here. But 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 here's my thoughts to sort of wrap up and give they, they overlap completely with what Karen was talking about. And an organization like UNECE is either going to be a barrier to development or a, or a shock troop for the new economy. 
Um, you're either going to sort of defend the status quo or you're going to challenge people to rethink their economic and commercial fundamentals. And, and the old order will not hold in the 21st century. Now, we're seeing so much dramatic change. Even climate change by itself is going to require a massive reorientation of our society. So UNECE should be an organization that's devoted to getting people thrilled about the fact that the future is coming, not terrified of it. Um, and I, I follow very much what Karen says. You know, people are really lousy learners about out from other countries. We really get burrowed down in what worked for us before and what our parents did and grandparents did and that sort of thing. Um, follow, follow the rest of the world. UNECE should be a, a window on digital economies and economic transitions on all the things that are happening. You know, pay attention to South Korea. Look at Taiwan and wonder what's going on there. China has some remarkable Guangzhou region doing some amazing, amazing things. But also, take a look at India. India has the world's biggest a digital identification system. They have 1.1 billion people locked up into a, a digital identification system. It has huge commercial potential. You know, who looks to India for great inspiration? Smart people look to India for digital inspiration. And so I, I guess my point here, UNECE should sort of do what it always does. <clears throat> Basically, engage key partners, um, get, get more digital content people talking to you about their in, in business, Talk to more people who, uh, who are thinking about the future. You know, the only thing we know about the future is we're going to get it wrong. But it's wrong not to think about the future because we have to sort of at least be pushing the frontiers and we're going to get it right a little bit as we go down the line. And, and make sure that we treat government officials and, and politicians as partners in this enterprise. They are not the enemy. They are coming in with a whole bunch of views and perspectives that they have to honor. Uh, they, 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 cannot, they might be resistant, but we have to convince them to go along. And so they have to be part of the enterprise. Uh, it's an exciting time. The world's never seen anything like it. And the only thing you can say um, in, in the words of Buck Turner Overdrive, that great Canadian rock, rock, you know, rock band, you ain't seen nothing yet. Dr. Karen Holroyd, uh, Mr. Coates, thank you for being on Innovation Matters. Our topic for today was the digital economy, its nature, implications, potential, and risks, and what this means for the role of innovation policy and governments more broadly. We talked about the role of digital economy, how large it is, and that it will keep rising, and also about the speed and unpredictability of change, even over, the, even over a time period as short as a couple of years. Uh, we talked about some confusion about the appropriate role of government and the different ways in which government in different parts of the world have tried to play a role. Countries in East and Southeast Asia are far in advance of other parts of the world in terms of seeing digital content as a promising economic sector. And that's something the rest of the world, including countries in, um, in the ECE region, can learn from. The digital content is often domestically focused, and we have to take this into account when planning our innovation policies. And we see the role of UNECE as helping our member states rethink economic fundamentals, inspire people, engage partners, and to help people to learn from existing practices on how to make the most of these opportunities. Thank you very much. I'll see you next time.